we are in Mark chapter 5. I hope you have your fingers still there. This is a fascinating scene that we have before us this morning in part 12 of our sermon series through uh, the Gospel of Mark. But before I get there, last Sunday evening, in fact, we were actually in Joshua chapter 10. We are in Joshua chapter 10, and we are talking about the idea of having a religion of relics, so to speak, and the idea that some people in different denominations and in different walks of faith have taken things throughout history and used them as confirmation for their faith. And we were in talking about Joshua chapter 10 and how that's kind of unfounded. But in, as I was reading for that sermon, I came across this tract. It's a tract put out by the Catholic Church, uh, believe it or not. And in it, it talks about um, relics. And it talks about uh, how, we, how they venerate them and how they sort of bring them through their church and whatnot. And one of the evidences for their relics that they have all throughout their different churches is in fact Mark chapter 5. Which I thought was interesting because I knew that that's what I was going to preach on. (laughs) So I bookmarked it and made sure I came back to it. Uh, If you don't know what I mean by relic, just think of, have you ever heard of the Shroud of Turin? You know, the the piece of cloth that has Jesus' face on it that they think came from his burial uh, claws or like the Holy Grail, uh, Indiana Jones chasing after the cup, that sort of thing. Um, Anyways, this... Catholic tract actually talks about Mark chapter 5 and where this woman with the issue of blood touches Jesus' robe. She touches this garment and she is healed immediately. And to some, this proves that there's somehow um, magical power within Christ's clothing. That if we have that, then we have something to uh, sink our faith into, to touch and to feel and have confirmation of what we believe. And such is why many still um, venerate and worship the supposed relics and remains of saints. But I want to suggest to you, and not just suggest, prove to you that this passage has nothing to do with the idea of a relic being something that we hold in worship. In fact, reading this passage this way completely misses the point of what Jesus is going to do, both in the life of this woman with the issue of blood, also with Jairus himself. You see here, um, I'm going to get a little bit technical with you, but that's okay. I hope you can stay with me because uh, here in Mark chapter, the latter half of Mark chapter 5, Mark does something which he does throughout the rest of this gospel, which is he sort of uh, interrupts himself. You'll notice that he does that in chapter 6 where he introduces a scenario and then he has another scenario come in between it, kind of sandwich, which at first doesn't appear as if it has anything to do with the scenario he already presented. And then he goes back to the original one later on. He interrupts himself constantly in his writing. He did this in chapter 3. He's going to do this in chapter 6 when we get there, hopefully, next week. And he also does it in chapter 11 and elsewhere. It's sort of, a, they call it chiastic structure, if you're a theologian or whatever. Uh, but literally, it just means he presents scenario A, he introduces a new story, and then he goes back to scenario A later on. But he really, he does that here, I think, for a powerful purpose. One in which, I think we will see, doesn't condone 
condone relics at all. It actually condones faith alone. Specifically, I would say, imperfect and ill-informed faith. Because you see in this entire passage, Jesus is, is condescending. He's making himself low for those who have this ill-informed faith. Both to show his glorious power and his glorious compassion. And it demonstrates both his sensitivity to human sorrow and his sovereignty over every single situation that we might face. It's all here in these verses. So here this morning, I want to give you three different portrayals of faith as we see them in this passage. So first of all, quickly, beginning in verse 21, I think we see faith's desperation. Look again at verse 21. Faith's desperation. And it says, And when Jesus was passed over again by ship unto the other side, much people gathered unto him, and he was nigh unto the sea. And, he, and behold, there cometh one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name. And when he saw him, he fell at his feet and besought him greatly. So Jesus and his disciples, remember what has already happened. He has just gone over the sea and healed this demoniac from Gadara. And now he's been forced out of that land. So he crosses back over the sea. The same sea, by the way, which his disciples went through that uh, terrible, tumultuous storm. (laughs) It's becoming uh, quite a notorious thing for them crossing back and over this Galilean sea. But notice, remember what he was doing when he initially went over. Remember at the end of chapter 4? And he's going uh, across the sea. Why? Because he needed rest. He needed to get some solitude and some quiet from ministry. And remember, he had crossed the sea. He landed on the side with the, the demoniac of Gadara. And he was immediately thrust back into ministry again. And then they forced him out. The, those men of the country forced him away. They Remember, they begged him. They prayed that he would leave. So he does so. And notice again, he is thrust back into ministry once again. Verse 21 again. Much people gathered unto him and he was nigh unto the sea. He hadn't even really established himself on the other side again. On the shore again. And he is immediately bombarded by these people who are pressing upon him to have something from him. Again, the thing he was after, rest, he still has not gotten. He still has not gotten the solitude that he was desiring. And yet, notice, he is ministering despite the fatigue, despite his weariness. He is still ministering to those who are desperate. And you have to really see this. Mark, as we've seen, he he emphasizes the crowd. And notice verse 24 where it says, And much people followed him and thronged him. It's a word that should make you just feel completely pressed on all sides. Like if you have claustrophobia and you can't deal with tight spaces. That's essentially what it's getting after here. He's being pressed and crowded on all sides by these people that are coming to him. That are gathering to him. And here we see though in this little scene. We see two desperate people come to him. Look at verse 22 again. It says, And there cometh one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name. When he saw him, he fell at his feet 
And he besought him greatly, saying, My little daughter lieth at the point of death. I pray thee, come and lay thy hands on her, that she may be healed, and she shall live. Jairus, this ruler of the synagogue. He's one who is an attendant, a keeper of that place. Ruler of the synagogue was a notorious and a prominent position in this first century culture. He wasn't necessarily a preacher. Think of him more like a deacon or a keeper. One who was ruling over and attending the synagogue for those who spoke there. But he's a prominent man. He's well known. He's highly regarded. One with a lot of sway and power. And observe that this man is making a public plea to a known, at least in some people's minds, blasphemer. You notice that? This religious man, Jairus, who is an attendant for the synagogues of the Pharisees, is coming to a man which the Pharisees have already outed as one that they dislike, as one that they actually hate. They think Jesus is a blasphemer, and here Jairus is coming to him. Remember we saw in chapter 3, verse 6, the plot to kill Jesus is already in motion. The wheels are turning between the Pharisees and the Herodians to take Jesus down. He's already ruffled enough feathers that they don't want him around. And yet here, Jairus, he comes to this man, this unwelcomed teacher, this unwanted, sort of off-limits man who was ruffling all of the feathers of the religious aristocrats. He comes to that man and he begs him, I pray you, come and heal my daughter. You can sense and feel Jairus' desperation. He doesn't know where else to turn other than this one who he knew he shouldn't go to. (laughs) He knows that he was probably going to get in trouble, reprimanded by some highfalutin Pharisee for coming to this guy. It doesn't matter. His daughter is sick to the point of death. So he goes to this religious outlaw and says, please, I beg you, come, touch my daughter that she may be healed. He's begging. Really, that's what that phrase means where it says in verse 23, and besought him greatly. He's begging. He's pleading. He's desperate for Jesus' attention. And he's striving to get it because he knows that his daughter's state is dreadful. She's at the point of death beyond all reasonable hope besides some sort of miracle. But I love The fact that Jesus listens to this man. And notice verse 24. It says, and Jesus went with him. And people followed him and thronged him. He is on his way now to heal this prominent figure's daughter. He listens and he follows. That is until we are told about the other desperate figure here in this scene. Because look at verse 25. It says, in a certain woman which had an issue of blood 12 years and had suffered many things of many physicians and had spent all that she had and was nothing bettered, but rather grew worse when she had heard of Jesus, came in the press behind and touched his garment. For she had said, if I may touch but his clothes, I shall be made whole. Here we have this woman who has... 
it says here, with, is afflicted with this issue of blood. And we're given plenty of details to sympathize with her condition. She literally has a pitiful existence. Not only is she suffering with this malady, she's been suffering with it for 12 years. And not only that, she has tried, she's gone to her wit's end to try and heal this malady. It says that she has uh, suffered many things of many physicians. <laughs> she's basically financed, or, or her whole life is being spent financing a way to cure this issue of blood. And yet, nothing is better. She's broke and worse off, and she's poor, still sick. She has a pitiful existence right now with this affliction rendered incurable by physicians all around her. And she's not better. She's worse off. And not only is she weak and anemic and broke, she is considered outcast. She is unclean. This issue of blood, it talks about it all the time in Leviticus chapter 15. She is outcast from society, ceremonially and socially. She cannot enter the temple court for the women because of her uncleanness. And she cannot socialize with those around her without announcing her uncleanness. She can't uh, fellowship with those around her without announcing the fact that she's unclean. Or they too would be made uh, to be partaking in her uncleanness. It's an outcast's life. She is desperate. You can sense it. And the way Mark is describing this scene for us. This woman has suffered this for over a decade. She's broke. Weak. She's displaced, she's unwanted, she's outcast, she's unwelcomed by all those around her. And yet, here, she's so desperate. She hears these rumors of this Jesus who heals, and she braves a crowd in order that I might touch him, she says. If I may just touch his clothes, I could be made healed. She heard of this teacher. This guy who was ruffling feathers, as we've already said, who's going around upsetting people at talking about various different things, making people feel uncomfortable about what they thought about the Messiah. And she hears about this guy and about how he's healing people from their illnesses and casting out demons. And she says, maybe this will work. You can even feel that she senses that there's some sort of magic in the way, uh, or in his clothes. If I just touch this teacher's clothes, her hope is mystical, we might say. But she has no other options. She has no other future uh, other than this. No future prospects in order to bank herself on. She has to have a miracle. And so she braves this crowd. Despite perhaps the ridicule she might face, she goes into this crowd in order to touch Jesus' robes. I think here, Jairus and this woman epitomize what it means to have a faith that's desperate. To have a faith that has no other hope. To have a faith that has no other leg to stand on. 
Both Jairus and this woman, they came to their wits end, we might say. They, their, their circumstances drove them to where they had no hope left other than this small twinkling of a hope. The idea that this outlaw religious teacher, that this magical man from Nazareth, he might be able to heal me. He might be able to heal my daughter. This was the only hope they had left. No other way out they knew. They didn't know any other hope other than them coming to this teacher. And I think this is what faith looks like. This is what true faith in God, in Jesus, in the gospel looks like. It looks like desperation. True faith is always desperate. It is always an embracing of our own inability an embracing of our own incapability of saving ourselves, of curing ourselves, of having any hope at all besides the one who is our only hope. This is a faith that is desperate. And I might even hasten to say this, that we are this woman with an issue of blood. We are this woman having tried countless remedies to cure our sinful souls. And nothing works. Nothing avails. And in fact, as it says, we worsen the problem. We have made things worse by trying to heal ourselves through self-medication. Or I might say self-salvation. We've made it worse. Because you see, until we realize there is no other hope than our only hope, we have not understood faith. Faith embraces our only hope because it's the only hope we have left. It's being brought to the end of yourself because you know that nothing you do will be able to stand. It's faith That is desperate. I would say that faith is only properly understood by desperate people who have come to their wits end when they realize they have no other hope than their only hope. But look, secondly, faith's desperation, but look at faith's recognition. Because look at verse 27 again. When she had heard of Jesus, came in the press behind and touched his garment, for she had said, If I may touch but his clothes, I shall be made whole. And straightway the fountain of her blood was dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of that plague. And Jesus, immediately knowing in himself that virtue had gone out of him, turned about in the press and said, Who touched my clothes? And his disciples said unto him, Thou seest the multitude thronging thee, and sayest thou who touched me? It's an interesting scene. It's an interesting scene because Jesus is not only following Jairus now. He's not only intentionally going after this prominent figure to heal his daughter. But he heals this woman with an issue of blood. And he heals her, we might think unknowingly. Certainly this woman was trying to sneak in a little graze of his robe. And she certainly equated this healing with a magical element in Jesus' clothes. She's uh, evidencing her superstition. But I think that's precisely why Jesus stops. Jesus stops in the middle of going to Jairus' house to draw attention to this unknown, unnoticed woman. Why? He wanted to show, not just this woman, but all around him, that this healing wasn't magical. It was one of faith. 
It wasn't about some sort of mystical element in the filaments that made up his robe. It was the fact that this woman had a glimmer of faith. And it healed her. He asked this ironic question. We've already seen that this crowd is pressing in on Jesus all around him. He's being bumped and shoved and jostled by countless people around him. And he asks the bold question, who touched me? You can sense the sarcasm in his disciples' voices as they ask, there's people all around you and you're asking who touched you? It's like you're going through the airport and you're frustrated that someone touched you. There's people all around you, Jesus. They're kind of dumbfounded by this question. And I love the fact that in Luke, Luke actually records the fact that this question was asked by Peter. He would, of course, speak up this way. But Jesus, I think, here sees and he knows the difference. He knows the difference between just being shoved in a crowd and being touched by faith. Because he says, look at verse 32, and he looked around about to see her that had done this thing. He draws attention to this woman. He knew the difference between just being shoved in a crowd and being touched out of desperation. Jesus always recognizes faith. Even the imperfect kind. Even the ill-informed kind. Even the kind that isn't quite sure. He recognizes faith. Because see, notice, he takes time here to respond to this woman's touch of faith. Look at verse 33. But the woman, fearing and trembling, knowing what was done in her, came and fell before him and told him all the truth. And he said unto her, Daughter, thy faith hath made thee whole. Go in peace and be whole of thy plague. He interrupts this venture to heal Jairus' daughter, to come to the aid of this unnoticed, obscure woman. And he calls her out. And this woman is fearing. She knows that she has brought Jesus into her uncleanness. She knows that she has acted sort of sneakily and stealthily to try and heal herself. (laughs) She trembles And I love that Jesus doesn't rebuke her. He doesn't uh, do that at all. He speaks tenderly to her. Notice what he calls her. He says, daughter. This one who is outcast from all society is brought into the family of God. By this little significant, uh, insignificant name of faith. Daughter. You've been ostracized from everyone because of your uncleanness. You have been made to be part of my family. This one who is outcast is brought near to Jesus' side. And he settles for us. Where this healing should be found. Where we should direct our attention at this healing. Because it's not in her finger touching this robe. It's in her faith. Notice he says, thy faith hath made thee whole. It's because of your faith. And even though it wasn't perfect... Jesus responded to it. It wasn't clear or confirmed faith for her. But Jesus confirms it and clears it up for her on her behalf. Jesus always recognizes faith. Even the imperfect kind. He even recognizes imperfect faith. 
Alexander McLaren, in commenting on this chapter, he asked, that, he asked this pointed question, where do we learn that faith must be complete to be genuine? Here, this woman had an incomplete faith. She thought by touching him, she would be made whole. But even in that incomplete faith, Jesus responds to it. And it reminds me of this great quote from one of my preacher friends. He says, even a mustard seed of faith can move a mountain of sin and cast it into the sea of forgetfulness. <laughs> a mustard seed of faith. The smallest amounts of trust in Jesus warrants us the full scope of what Jesus has done for us. And yes, we can talk about it, discipling this woman to learn the correct way of how to uh, distinguish between relics and religion and faith and what grace means and all those sorts of things. <laughs> but even the minuscule amount of faith that you might put forward grants you the marvelous grace of God. It grants you the grace that heals you from all your sickness of sin. This woman isn't turned away. She's embraced. And she's made clean by Christ's power. Instead of Christ being made unclean by her uncleanness, Christ overwhelms her uncleanness. Her uncleanness is made to be washed away. Even by this small amount of faith. This incomplete, imperfect faith. But notice verse 35 quickly as we hasten. Thirdly, we see faith's validation. Look at verse 35. It says, while he yet spake, while Jesus is talking, conversing with this woman, there came from the ruler of the synagogue's house certain which said, Thy daughter is dead. Why troublest thou the master any further? As soon as Jesus heard the word that was spoken, he saith unto the ruler of the synagogue, Be not afraid. Only believe. Each gospel records this story in the same exact way. Which is, it introduces this scene with Jairus. And in the middle of it, Jesus stops. He stops himself to heal this woman and talk to her. And then he continues on his way to continue with Jairus. I imagine, imagine Jairus' face. Put yourself in Jairus' shoes, or his sandals, we might say. Put, him, put yourself there. You know that your daughter is on the brink of death. That any moment you could get the news that she is, going to be, she is, she is gone. And finally, you get this, this teacher to come with you. And on his way, he stops and pauses, which must have felt like an eternity. This delay must have felt like years for Jairus. It must have felt forever for him to stop and pause and talk to this lady. <laughs> this lady who is a no one. She's not even named. We don't even know who she is. She's an unnoticed, unknown woman. And yet Jesus is stop stopping and speaking to her, bowing in front of her and tenderly speaking to her, must have felt like a hindrance. <laughs> Why are we stopping? We need to keep going. Can we come back to her later? We can, we can come back to her after we're done healing my daughter. It must have felt like a waste of time. 
In Jairus' mind, this was wasting time. Time was precious. His daughter was about to die. This, we don't have time for this, Jesus. We, this, this is out of the scope of what we can do. And then his worst fears are realized. His worst fears are realized even as Jesus is speaking to this woman. A messenger comes and says, your daughter has passed away. She has died. There's no point in coming now. There's no point in persisting through this crowd. The mission is a failure. All is lost. Your daughter is dead. And I love, I love that we hear or or we're made to see that Jesus overhears this. It says, while he yet spake, there came from the ruler of the synagogue's house certain which said, Thy daughter is dead. Why troublest thou the master any further? This messenger is not speaking to Jesus. He's speaking to those in the crowd sort of surrounding the scene. And it says, as soon as Jesus heard the word that was spoken, he overhears. He overhears this messenger's news. And he interrupts. This moment of despair. And says. Be not afraid. Only believe. He says here that there's something to be learned. Jairus just believe. Don't be afraid. There's something to be learned here. And so he reduces. Look at what happens. He reduces the crowds to a small group. Look at verse 37. And he suffered no man to follow him. Save Peter and James. And John, the brother of James, and he cometh to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and seeth the tumult and them that wept and wailed greatly. He comes to Jairus' house. There's, it says, a tumult, a great noise of weeping and wailing. They're grieving over the death of this daughter. And he ridicules them. Look at verse 39. And when he was come in, he saith unto them, Why make ye this ado and weep? The damsel is not dead, but sleepeth. Here he's not being sort of, uh, sort of uncaring of their grief. He's not denying the reality of death. You have to see here, he's only denying the finality of this daughter's death. Because in Jesus' mind, her rising, her resurrection was a sure thing. And look at verse 40. These ones who are mourning, they laugh at him. Look at it, it says, and they laughed him to scorn. But when he had put them all out, he taketh the father and the mother of the damsel and them that were with him and entereth in where the damsel was lying. And he took the damsel by the hand and said unto her, Talithi kumai, which is being interpreted damsel, I say unto thee, arise. And straightway the damsel arose and walked, for she was of the age of twelve years, and they were astonished with a great astonishment. And he charged them straightly that no man should know it. And commanded that something should be given her to eat. What an incredibly affecting scene. Jesus comes in and touches this dead daughter. One who was surely dead. Everyone is weeping and wailing at her deadness. And here he comes in and says, she's not dead. She's only asleep. He touches this daughter's deadness the woman's uncleanness and the evidences that his power and his holiness cannot be tainted or thwarted by any of our uncleanness we have no ability to stop Jesus's mission to restore and redeem us and in fact Jesus helps Jairus all the more in this delay because look at he stops 
He, ra- he lets the stakes of the scene raise up to an even more intense level. Now she's just not at the point of death. She's dead. Jesus knows that. He knows that that is going to happen. And he stops anyways. And he's getting Jairus to see, getting us to see, that there's no circumstance in which he is not sovereign. There is no situation in which you can be in, even perhaps right now at this moment, in which Jesus is not king and ruler and sovereign over it. He is the Lord in the storm, as we've seen. And he is the Lord in this season of distress and death. His way and his timing is perfect. Do you think it seemed perfect to Jairus at the time? I don't think so. It didn't seem perfect that they, that they were waiting. That they were waiting around, wasting time. And Jesus is saying, your timing isn't mine. Your timeline doesn't look like mine. My timing is perfect. And I'm sovereign even when we think I'm not. I'm in control even when it looks like chaos. I'm the king even when it looks like evil is winning. His timing is perfect. And it's often not ours. It's often not the way that we would do it. But Jesus heightens the stakes here. He knows this because he wants us to see that his sovereignty is unmatched. And his grace is omnipotent enough to meet us in every single moment of our life. He is the strong one. And he is the sure one. He is the sure thing that we can bank on in all of life. When you have faith in the gospel of Christ. It's faith in this sure thing. The sure thing of Christ himself. He is our solid rock. The solid ground. All around is sinking sand except for him. He is the sure thing that we rely on. Not trinkets and relics and shrouds. (laughs) It's this person. This person who bent his knee and touched an unclean woman. Who touched the hand of this dead daughter. He's the sure thing. This person. It's Christ himself. He is our sure thing. I I, I don't know what you're enduring this morning. What you are being confronted with. It might be something incredibly serious. Or it might be something that has just stressed you beyond belief. It might appear as if all is fracturing and falling and falling out of your control. Guess what? That's okay. Because God's in control. God's a better controller over your life than you are. He's a better sustainer over your life than you are. His timing is perfect. His timing is always on time. I hate hate to even bring this up, but I will anyways. uh, Because I just watched through all of the Lord of the Rings. And I love the fact, I think it's in the book, I don't remember. I have to reread them. But when Gandalf, the wizard... And this is probably going over some of your heads, and that's okay. But this wizard comes, and he comes and meets his friend. And his friend says, you're late. And he says, a wizard is never late, Frodo Baggins. He arrives precisely when he means to. God's never late. 
He's never late to our accidents. One pastor, this just came to my head, one pastor, he's preaching one time and he says, God never drives an ambulance. He never arrives late to an accident. It may feel that way. It may feel that he's oh, coming late and just having to work triage on our life. He's never late. He arrives precisely when he means to, either for our good or for someone else's, but always for his glory. He's never late. He is our sure thing. In every single moment of life, this is the sure thing that you can rest on. Let us pray.